This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sami Siddiqui. Today, I'm speaking to Dr. Kama McLean about her fantastic book, A Revolutionary History of Interwar India, Violence, Image, Voice, and Text, published by Oxford University Press in New York in 2015 and Penguin India in 2016. Dr. McLean is Professor of South Asian History at the University of Heidelberg in Germany. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, Dr. McLean. So our first question is always biographical. Could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up and how did you become interested in South Asian history? Thank you so much, Sami. I think that's another book actually right there. Um, But the short answer is that I grew up in Sydney, Australia. And I, I came to India in my late teens, in part, um, you know, traveling, searching, I think, as so many late teenagers in the late 1980s do. And I became interested in um, Indian history. And when I came back, I picked it up and I've never really put it down again. It just became something that I found absolutely fascinating. I studied um, Hindi, Sanskrit, um, I exhausted all of the history offerings at um, the Latrobe University where I was studying at the time uh, and then moved somehow into a PhD and um, many years later here I still am. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a long story, but that's the, the short answer. Great, thank you. Um, so could you tell us why you decided to write uh, this book, which puts the revolutionary Hindustan Socialist Republican Association, or ARMY, uh, at the center of the story. A quick note to the listeners, for the sake of brevity, I will be using HSRA in the rest of this discussion. So, the, I mean, there was a number of things that prompted this book, and um, I think some of the most important influences on me were, um, you know, going through my university years with the Subaltern Studies Collective, beginning to write and to look at um, writing alternative narratives around some of the established stories that had grown up around the Indian anti-colonial movement. And so in part, that was the kind of the basis that I had. Um, in Australia, we had a number of the subalternists regularly visiting, um, Gaon Pandey and Dupesh Chakrabarti. Mm-hmm. I remember one of my first um uh, South Asian history classes. Um, we had Shahid Amin come and talk to us. We were extraordinarily privileged in some of the people who came to Australia to talk about their research. And so that was the, the sort of basis on which I began thinking about Indian anti-colonialism. And I think of, of all of those, probably the biggest influence was Shahid Amin's work and in particular his um, 
his book about Gandhi in Gorakhpur and the various reactions to Chaudhary Chowder. Um, on top of that, some of the other interventions that have been relatively recent were in visual cultural studies and in what becomes known subsequently as the visual turn in, in South Asia. Um, again, Kadri Jain was a really important influence for me. She came out of the University of Sydney from the art history department, um, funnily enough, where I actually began my study. And um, and then on top of that, there was the work of uh, Christopher Penny and, and Sumati Ramaswamy, both of whom had made really important interventions into the role of visual culture in shaping ideas about Indian anti-colonialism. And for both of whom um, had made really important interventions in terms of trying to get historians of South Asia to look at images more seriously and perhaps to let them lead um, historical analysis. And that was something that I, I really tried to take seriously in the book about Pavad Singh. Um, I, I talk about in the introduction of the book that I was first prompted to write about Pavad Singh after I had a student, in fact, come to me in Australia and tell me that she wanted to write an essay about him. And I said, yes, go ahead, sure. And she went and tried to do some research and couldn't find any books in our university library in Sydney. And um, that kind of prompted me to think this is interesting because we had just had the um, centenary of Bhagat Singh's birth in 2007 at that stage. And there had been a, a, an enormous amount of interest in, um, in India, certainly around Bhagat Singh and a revival of exhibitions and um you know, biopics and, in fact, a number of biopics um, coming out of the popular um, Hindi film industry. And so he was very much uh, at the forefront of many people's imaginations. And I just happened to um, had travelled to Punjab um, while on sabbatical and, again, had found Bhagat Singh all throughout the various bazaars of Amritsa and... It really prompted me to think about why why is he everywhere? And this, of course, is Christopher Pinney's precise question. Why is Bhagat Singh so popular in Indian popular culture and yet so much neglected in historical narratives? And that was a, a question that I really carried into um, my, my project to try and work out why that disjuncture had come about. And at the same time, I, um, we had some really interesting work, um, in particular by um, Faisal Devji and um, Taylor Sherman, for example, on um, you know Gandhi and his relationship with violence, and in the case of Taylor Sherman's work on the use of violence by um, by the British imperial government in India, and so the the issue of violence was very much at the forefront of. Um, my thinking as well. And I, mm-hmm. I guess the, the two areas came together in the book and um, it, it took a long time to write, I have to say. It took about seven years. But these were the, the two driving forces. One was the this sort of the promise of the visual turn and also the mismatch of existing historiography um, around Indian anti-colonialism. Great, thank you. Yeah, and that really comes through. All these influences really come through uh, when I when I read the book. Thank you. Um, but before we get into the content of the book itself, um, I was wondering if you could talk about the title as well as the subtitle of the book. I ask because it not only gets to the heart of your book, it also hints at the types of sources you're engaging with, which I found really compelling. And you've already hinted at some of the sources you're looking at uh, in terms of visual sources. 
Yeah, sure. So um, a revolutionary history of interwar India um, is partly, I mean, it's obviously a play on words with revolutionary because um, this is a book about revolutionaries. And in um, in South Asia, the, the concept of a revolutionary is an extremely powerful one, actually. It's of a, mm-hmm. um, I mean, again, I've written a, a co-edited a separate book with a colleague of mine, Daniel Elam, about what it means to be a revolutionary in the South Asian context. And ultimately, it's a, it's a very difficult um, uh, thing to define. But broadly speaking, when people talk about revolutionaries in the context of Indian nationalism, they talk about people who are not taking the predominant Gandhian path and mm-hmm. often infers people who are using violence in in their um, anti-colonial practice or advocating violence or understanding at least why some people turn to violence. And so by writing a revolutionary history, I was actually trying to understand the role of violence in the Indian um, anti-colonial movement. And um, in, into what India is a fairly, um, you know, it's a fairly precise um you know, temporal context. In fact, the the focus of the book was really from 1928, um, which is when the second um, major wave of anti-colonialism in India, depending on how, you know, Gandhian, let's say Gandhian anti-colonialism takes off with the civil disobedience movement, which is ultimately prompted by the arrival of the Simon Commission, the all-white commission into India, who is to decide... Uh, and to inform the next uh, Government of India Act, which eventually is passed in 1935, and the protests that um, that particular um, arrival of the Simon Commission started. And it ends in 1932, um, but I do carry it forward a little, um, you know, it's a slightly elastic time frame. Mm-hmm. But the subtext, I think, the the subtitle, I mean, um, is perhaps the the more interesting part: violence, image, voice, and text. And um, violence, I guess, is is again fairly self evident, which relates to the the revolutionary. How do we understand violence in the Indian national um, movement when the normative understanding, um, which is almost global, in fact, and again perpetuated by popular cultural tropes about Gandhi and um, and what is often mistermed passive resistance um, and, and the ways in which that informed the nationalist movement and, in fact, often achieved Indian independence, at, um, you know, in some of the most, um, you know, popular understandings of this, certainly globally. And I wanted to contextualise that and to tell and to look at what a really close interrogation of alternative methodologies, so image, meaning visual cultures, um, but also voice and text. What do these things tell us? What do minority reports tell us about um, some of the understandings? And in, in particular, when I looked at voice in this context, I was thinking of oral history interviews, which um, many of which had been recorded, but very few of which had been um, systematically incorporated, I think, into in Indian um, anti-colonial understandings. Mm-hmm. And then the final part, of course, is text. Now, of course, text has been historically the the go-to for historians. And I think what was important for my book was that there had been a really major um, release of intelligence documentation in 
um, in Britain, in, in, in the um, India office in particular, um, since the, the, the fairly standard um, nationalist historiography texts had been written in the 1970s in particular. Mm. And I, I, I felt that this sort of release of, of new material, m- much of it was from intelligence agencies in India, how that actually had um, what kind of a different perspective it gave us from the kinds of classic um you know, Cambridge School, but also not necessarily Cambridge School, also subaltern um, narratives, in particular that of Gyan Pandey, for example, um, which is all written in the 70s without the um, the access to some of these materials. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it was actually about approaching um, a, a fairly uh, well-established narrative of Indian nationalism and how it operates and what its dynamics are, taking into consideration new methodological sources in South Asian studies. Great. Thank you. I really uh, found that really interesting and important. Uh, and, you know, this is maybe reflective of uh, a reflection of my ignorance, but I didn't know about these oral history sources, which I would love to mine at some point. Uh, so thank you. Um, so I, as I think you've already made clear, it seems like there's been a turn towards looking at violence, colonial, anti-colonial, and also in terms of ideas in the historiography on colonial India. Uh, as someone who is at the center of this historiographical turn, or at least it is uh, that it seems like that to me, um, I was wondering if you could talk about how you would characterize the historiography um, on violence uh, before telling us how your work uh, fits into this literature. So it's it's a complicated um, scenario in some ways, um, and in fact, a lot of the the bigger textbooks of um, you know the the larger narrative of Indian anti colonialism from the nineteenth century on do actually mention um, the HSRA and various revolutionary organisations and the ways in which that plugged into um, mainstream, uh, for want of a better word. Indian anti-colonialism, in particular the Congress, is seen in a lot of these narratives as being the primary organisation which pushes um, and advances Indian anti-colonialism. Now, again, that's a that's a very India-centric um, approach. It has to be noted, but it, it nonetheless has been actually quite dominant. And so a lot of the, the classic accounts, you know, by Bipin Chandra, um, for example, do actually acknowledge the impact of revolutionaries in Indian nationalism, but there's not a great deal of detail. And I guess what I was trying to do was sink down deeper and to provide um, some of the the closer interactions between revolutionaries and Congress members that was enabled, in fact, by oral history accounts in particular, but also, you know, to an extent also by some... um, intelligence reports, but more importantly by um, by art, by, by visual imagery, by posters, by popular posters, which seem to infer these really interesting clandestine relationships between, you know, Gandhi and the revolutionaries, for example. Now, there, there are also at the same time um, a number of Indian scholars who have been, you know, really for generations patiently working along uh, revolutionary-centric uh, forms of scholarship but it rarely left India, actually. So in, um, I'm thinking in particular here of the work of Yafan Habib, um, mm. who wrote a number of books about Bhagat Singh and revolutionaries. But 
when my student went to the library in Australia, and perhaps that would have been true of other places as well, um, the these texts were didn't really seem to find a, an impact actually on on international um, you know academic thinking about Indian nationalism. The, the Gandhian narrative really stayed normative and dominant. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, you know, the Gandhian narrative is a very attractive one. I think we all love the idea of nonviolence being effective and potent and, um, you know, and morally, uh, you know, um, superior and, you know, mm-hmm. there is a certain narrative around Gandhian politics that is, is very attractive and I think, you know, particularly in a Cold War perspective, it's especially att- attractive as well, which I think explains why mm-hmm. so many Western scholars in particular have been so taken by Gandhian stories um, you know, in any given year, there was so much scholarship being published on Gandhi um, in international presses, right, which is making this, um, you know, larger historiography of um, Indian anti-colonialism. And so these are the, the two trends we have is that um, there's a, a, a small acknowledgement of revolutionary activity, mostly in textbooks, but also in a lot of Indian scholarship. But, but this is not making a, a substantial dent on a lot of the um, the mainstream international academic writing, which returns to Gandhi over and over again in so many different contexts and for many, you know, interesting and understandable reasons. So I guess what I was trying to do is to marry the two of those um, forms of scholarship of trying to um, to demonstrate the interactions and the interconnections between the revolutionaries and this, you know, larger Congress movement, including with Gandhi. And um, where my work fits into this literature is, I guess, precisely there. But I I should actually mention that, I mean, you very kindly said I was at the centre of this turn, but actually I was part of a a much larger group who... um, we, and we all worked together really, really well and informally called ourselves, a, um, the, you know, a revolutionary collective of sorts. <laughs> and, um, and, in fact, I, I just happened, my book just happened to come out slightly before some of the others. And so some of the people in this, you know, collective, we were meeting regularly at conferences and we were conferring and we were talking about and regularly emailing each other and working on edited collections um, in journals and, um, you know, for example, my subtitle was actually partly workshopped by um, by Chris Moffat, who has also recently published his book on um, memories of Bhagat Singh in, um, in more contemporary time, but also um, historically as well. You know, what, what does Interesting. The, the memory of Bhagat Singh in contemporary South Asia, including in Pakistan, interestingly, where much of this mm-hmm. takes place, mean? Um, there was also the work of Dorba Ghosh, who was working on Bengali revolutionaries um, at the same time I was. Um, there was, of course, I've already mentioned uh, Daniel Elam and a number of other scholars who published a little after, um, including Ali Raza, who was working on the, the left um, in uh, undivided India. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we actually all came together on a fairly regular basis. Um, Simona Sani, who was approaching Bhagat Singh from a literary perspective, um, Anya Lumba, who was working on uh, revolutionaries and women in particular. Um, we all came together at irregular but reasonably um, uh, regular timings to talk about and, and think about some of these issues in a larger forum. And so it was 
very much in some ways a group project, but a really collaborative one, but also a very informal one, um, which was extremely rich and exciting, I think, for all of us to actually be part of. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it has actually led, I mean, all the collective weight of this scholarship has really started to shift understandings of Indian anti-colonialism, the, the role of violence in the Indian nationalist movement, but also the role of violence um, coming from the British colonial side, which actually is the impetus for much of this violence as well. Great. Thank you. And yes, uh, Derbra Ghosh's Gentlemanly Terrorists is, is a fantastic book that comes after yours, uh, but I know you cited her articles that came out previously in this book, and I would love to interview her and Anya Lum, uh, Lumbia as well. Um, uh, so yeah, thank you very much. Uh, that really helps in sort of uh, mapping out the historiography and where your book fits in. Um, so in the introduction of uh, you write, and I quote, Despite their very different modalities of action, separating the revolutionaries of the HSRA from the rubric of the nationalist movement is a difficult task. The revolutionaries were deeply engaged with the Congress movement, even as they attempted to radicalize it through critique and polemic, but also through what can best be described as collegial interaction, end quote. I was wondering if you could expand on the HSRA's relationship with the Congress and tell us what the implications of this are for the story of Indian nationalism and independence more broadly. So, um, you know, a lot of the time the, um, you know, the relationship when I talk about critique and polemic, what I mean here is, of course, the the kind of polemic between Gandhi in particular and the revolutionaries, which um, is well known and um, this provides the sense that the Congress movement has a hostile relationship with the revolutionaries. Now, I think what's going on here is that there's a lot of slippage between the, the contemporary Congress party, which goes on to rule much of independent India um, for, its, you know, for decades after, and the Congress movement that we're actually talking about in the 1930s. And I think... What's really important to note is that the Congress movement in the 19... I, I would say really, in fact, it's the the violent politics of the revolutionaries that starts to shift Congress approaches and, and also obviously the electoral politics that are introduced by the 1935 Government of India Act that forced the Congress into a much clearer set of principles um, to set out what it stands for, what, it, what its aims are and what means it will actually use to achieve those aims. And so its relationship mm-hmm. with violence is becoming increasingly mapped during this period. Now, of course, Gandhi is the person doing a lot of that mapping, um, and yet Gandhi is not, he, he's, you know, there's a lot of, you know, major in, and important leaders who are operating around Gandhi who are actually working with the revolutionaries in mm-hmm. um, often covert ways, but also often overtly as well. And the most important one that I wanted to gesture towards in the book was uh, Motilal Nehru, who has long been considered a moderate politician and a Gandhian, but who actually is giving a lot of um, overt and covert advice and support to the revolutionaries, realising mm-hmm. that um, the politics of violence creates and deepens the political spectrum in which Gandhi and the Congress are able to gain traction on um, British imperialism. And so I think that's really important to note. So um, the revolutionaries 
of course, and, and many scholars note this, including, you know, Bipin Chandra and um, Shvetshaka, all of their sort of early classical work, note how the revolutionaries were at some stage um, taking part at, often as very young children in the non-cooperation movement, but they become uh, disenchanted by Gandhian politics and turn to revolutionary action. So that's that's been known for a long time. But what we haven't been, I guess, so um, clear of and, and mostly becomes it, because it comes out of oral history methodologies, which have been collected in the 1970s, but which aren't necessarily, which seem to take a long time to get incorporated into um, historians' footnotes, you know. And mm-hmm. um, that, that could be about access. Um, some of these I don't know when they were made accessible. Um, one of the biggest collections I used were from the University of Cambridge's um, South Asian Studies collection, which is online, and it's a wonderful collection which you can search by keyword and mm-hmm. um, the audio files with the interviews are there, which I just find wonderful to use in my research but also in teaching because the depth, this is where the voice in my title comes from, the voice in some of these interviews is so critical um, in mm-hmm. putting emphasis on the narrative that has been told. Um, and I... I Having listened to these transcripts, um, having heard the the speakers, often you know frail voices, who are clearly not having any trouble recollecting detail, but also becoming animated by the politics of the time. You know, you, you hear the excitement of you know, then we did this and and then this. Mm-hmm. You know, I think some of these really dismissive old style um, approaches to oral history that. Um, that sort of negates them is um, is much these these um, negations are much harder to address when you listen to the the clarity of some of these interviews. Um, now, of course, we still have to use these sources really carefully and critically, but mm-hmm. I, I found those um, those audio recordings in particular really important. And surely they've only been widely available, globally available, which I think is wonderful. In perhaps the last you know maybe eight years, ten years max. So um, I, I became aware of this sort of larger interaction between other Congress leaders, people like Ganesh Shankar Vidyati, who was a Congress leader from UP, a really important Congress leader in UP, actually, um, and the revolutionaries um, who he often provided um, a hiding to, but also publication training and assistance. You know, Bhagat Singh, for example, learns a lot of what he knows about journalism from um, Ganesh Shankar Vidyati, who's the editor of the Pratap, um, which is one of the most popular and widely read um, newspapers in UP in this period. Um, the interactions that he has with him in particular are actually quite important, but it's not just Bhagat Singh, it's also Chandrasekhar Azad and many other um, perhaps lesser-known revolutionaries who survive um, the revolutionary moment, unlike Bhagat Singh, unlike Chandrasekhar Azad. And they are mm-hmm. able to give their oral history testimonies, which are really critically important, I think, as well. It's also really interesting. I mean, Bhagat Singh's father um, was also a congressman and he had an extensive friendship network in Amritsar and Lahore of, um, of other congress leaders. And Bhagat Singh, again, knew all of these people and they often met informally and... Um, and talked and argued and were friends. And um, I think these relationships are really critical um, and important to take note of. 
So I, I guess that's what I, I hope to get across by collegial interaction is, is some of the, the cross-checking and um, informal contexts that revolutionaries had through Congress networks um, that they had grown up with and been part of since quite literally their childhoods. And these connections really do matter, um, I think, and that was another mm-hmm. thing that I wanted to, to emphasise. Great, thank you. And yeah, as we you know um, go into some of the individual chapters, uh, the listeners will see how you know that really comes through very strongly in almost all the chapters, if not all of them. Um, so in chapters one and two, you explore the ideas, activities, and tactics of the HSRA. Could you tell the listeners about the HSRA's revolutionary ideology and tactics? Um, and in doing so, I was hoping you could explain how they were successfully able to spread their message and develop a popular following. Yeah, sure. So it's a it's a dynamic ideology. Um, I think it has to be said. Um, the HSRA grows out of an earlier revolutionary organization, the HRA, or the Hindustan Republican Association, and many of the members of that organization were arrested, uh, imprisoned, or executed um, in connection with a a dacoity um, that the revolutionaries carry out, holding up a train um, to rob it so that they have funds to start their revolutionary project. And so a lot of the the ideas of the revolutionaries um, of the Hindustan Socialist Republican Association kind of grow out of that basic idea that we need to advance a revolutionary project of, of freeing India from British imperialism faster um, with violence if necessary. But also it's a it's a much larger project which is also influenced by a lot of leftist uh, and hence socialist thinking in the, in the title of the HSRA, um, which is also becoming really influential through um, grassroots politics, especially um, throughout the Punjab, through the um, Peasants and Workers Party, for example, and mm-hmm. the, these understandings that... Um, you know, uh, British imperialism draws India into a global uh, network of capitalism, which is, you know, exploiting basically um, peasants and workers in India. And um, they understand implicitly that they need funding to finance their various projects, which are primarily propaganda projects, actually, um, at this stage. <coughs> Excuse me. So the um, their initial program is to try to find ways of publicizing their politics. Now, at the same time, we have, in fact, coterminously, um, the Mirat conspiracy case um, is, is, you know, 1928-29. doesn't really escalate until 1929, but there had been um, a number of uh, British and uh, even American uh, communists in India spreading communist ideology um, and trade unionism. And the British are starting to, to be concerned about this. They're trying to work out how they can legislate to um, limit the growth of um, socialist and communist ideologies in South Asia. And they eventually try to do that um, by legislating, actually, against um, the arrival of foreign communists in India. Um, and, and so while all of this literature is actually growing, the um, the revolutionaries are trying to think how they can actually make these public statements which are obviously illegal. You know, um, you know, in the, the times we're talking about, the British are working out how they can make thinking about 
communism and socialism a crime. And so mm-hmm. the revolutionaries are in this position where they're trying to publicise their political thought and program, which is a revolutionary and a socialist one, but they're also incapable of doing this because the British have a monopoly on, on um, press expression, for example. So what the what the revolutionaries work out is that they need to work out a way of um, popularising and communicating with the public through action. Now, in the in this context, um, the Simon Commission comes to um, India in 1928 at a protest against the Simon Commission in Lahore in November of 1928. Um, uh, an elderly congressman, Lala Lajpat Rai, is beaten by police um, in a lati charge, and he dies about ten days later. And the um, the HSRA in Lahore. Um, decide to retaliate to this. They're incensed that, again, the, the program of nonviolence effectively disables congressmen from defending themselves, right? And there's an elderly man here who is being clubbed by police and he doesn't defend himself because he's part of this Congress nonviolent um, strategy. But the revolutionaries mm-hmm. feel like they actually need to answer this act of violence. And so they plan to um, assassinate the policeman who was responsible for attacking and and, um, coordinating the charge that ends up killing Lala Lajpat Rai. And so they they do assassinate an Indian, um, a British policeman um, and also an Indian policeman who comes to the British policeman's aid in December of 1928. They immediately go underground, they go on the run and they do manage to escape uh, Lahore um, and it's this this event, which is um, again a, a sensation in um, across British India. It's a, a sensation for the British, who call it an outrage. This idea of um, an Indian killing a British policeman is considered to be a political outrage to um, to order. Um, and ultimately, what it is is an outrage to this understanding that it is somehow normative. You know, the British have the control of the monopoly of violence in Weberian uh, mm-hmm. terms, and for Indians to use violence against the British is an outrage, right? It's a it's an, a, a turning up of the order of things that underpin colonialism. And that's precisely what the revolutionaries are trying to do. One of the things they're trying to do is say, do not think that your acts of violence will go unanswered you know, perhaps the Congress won't answer, but we will. So in some ways they actually act as a, a militant arm of the Congress, or even as the Congress actually disowns and disavows their militant arm, even though, in fact, in response to this act of violence, there are many congressmen who uh, act to congratulate the revolutionaries for this answer, you know, uh, for mm-hmm. avenging this um, this brutal beating of Lala Lajpat Rai. Now, that, that one act and, and the mystery around who committed the act, where are the revolutionaries, who, 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 who did this, who is responsible, this is um, a sort of an, an unanswered question until in April of 1929 the revolutionaries decide to throw bombs into the Legislative Assembly in Delhi as a, an act which is being attempted to be passed to prohibit um, the arrival of foreign communists, but also to outlaw trade unionism in India, um, both of which the revolutionaries are in ideologically um, invested against 
or in, uh, mm-hmm. invested in stopping. They throw bombs into the chamber um, in a very careful way. They don't want to kill anybody. They just want to make a loud noise. And again, they they throw leaflets into the assembly at the same time, which reference um, the anarchist valiant who says it takes a loud noise to make the deaf hear. So it's about trying to publicise through action, um, mm-hmm. through violent action, potentially violent action, although no one's actually seriously hurt in this particular event. The revolutionaries um, who throw the bombs into the assembly, which is uh, Bhagat Singh and BK Dutt, then surrender to police and they're imprisoned and um, in the, the course of, you know, I'd say the next nine months, there's a very, very sophisticated publicity campaign that is premeditated and carried out using the photographs of Bhagat Singh and BK Dutt in nationalist newspapers um, and which eventually become um, referenced and reproduced so often, these these two images, um, these um, photographs of Bhagat Singh and BK Dutt, Bhagat Singh in particular, that mm-hmm. it perpetuates ideas about their politics, um, about violence, but there's also at the same time a counter-narrative that is that British, um, the, the British uh, imperial system is actually framing Bhagat Singh and that he's innocent. And so there's these um, rather confused narratives that Bhagat Singh is a hero who has answered uh, British colonial violence with violence. And then there's a counter-narrative that um, that speaks of the distrust in the British court systems at the time, that Bhagat Singh is innocent. And some of these actually, um, you know, uh, follow Bhagat Singh right until his execution in 1931. So in, in short, um, the answer to your question is they spread their message through deed, through these um, assassinations, um, and, you know, in this process there are three assassinations that they're, or two assassinations that they're really involved in. There's a number of spin-off and copycat assassinations that come across um, subsequently, um, but it's that um, it's that deed that is used to publicise their politics but also a very, very clever media campaign um, which is organised by the deliberate release of, the photographs of Bhagat Singh and BK Dutt to um, a number of different Indian press outlets, um, which enables them to become perpetuated and popularized. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Great. Thank you. Um, And just a quick note to the listeners um, that... uh, to go alongside uh, some of the stuff that uh, Dr. McLean has talked about um, regarding communist internationalism, um, the book by Ali Reza on communist internationalism is on uh, has been published uh, by the New Books Network and um, Joseph McQuaid's book on um, terrorism um, should also be on the New Books Network shortly, which I think goes very well with uh, with Dr. McLean's book. Um, so chapter three focuses on the figure of Durga Devi Vohra. Um, could you tell the listeners about who she was and what her life tells us about women's role in Indian revolutionary movements like the HSRA? So um, Durga Devi Vora was um, married to one of the members of the HSRA who um, his name was Bhagwati Chan Vora 
and he was um, he was a writer. He he wrote a lot of the um, the manifestos and um, you know statements of the HSRA. Um, he's actually killed relatively early on uh, when testing a bomb goes off prematurely while he's holding it, and he's um, therefore killed. Dies um, probably what was a very um, slow and painful death, and uh, renders her a widow. Um, now. In fact, she had also been um, involved in the Revolutionary Party prior to his death. She had, um, again, she, she plays a very interesting um, gender role here. She, by taking on these ideas of Indian women as being um, passive and, and private individuals who are not out in public, she is able to, um, to sort of deploy these ideas that the British have about Indian women to provide cover, actually, to a lot of revolutionary um, organisational plotting, um, but also she actually aids the escape of revolutionaries out of Lahore after that first assassination that I told you about earlier. But actually she also mm-hmm. um, takes active part after her husband's death. She goes to Chandrasekhar Azad, who's the um, commander of the organisation, and she says, I want to be a revolutionary now. I've lost my husband Um I want to take part in full revolutionary work. And what her story tells us is, I mean, it it demonstrates how, in fact, uh, she was able to turn, uh, you know, as I've already said, um, British ideas about Indian women against them because she was able to provide quite literally a beard, right, a a disguise to a lot of um, revolutionary operations because the British would just never presume that a woman could have been involved in some of these violent activities. So, for example, she gets involved in gun running. Um, she is able to travel around with uh, weapons, carrying weapons, and she's never searched because the British would um, would not dream of searching a, a, an Indian woman when she's holding guns. Um, and so she's able to play a lot, of, um, a lot with that. But she also is interesting because... It's long been thought that the um, the revolutionaries were a, a masculine organisation, and predominantly the main actors were men. But um, in fact, she demonstrates in her the ways in which she worked with Chandrasekhar Azad uh, cooperatively um, demonstrates a willingness of the organisation to work with and deploy women as operational functional members of the party. Um, so, again, there's there's long been a presumption that um, Azad in particular felt that women were dangerous in the party and she shows us that that wasn't actually the case, um, that mm-hmm. fact, women could be extremely useful as party members. Um, there's a lot more work being done on um, Dugadevi Bora, actually. Uma um, Chakrabarti's um, done a lot of oral interviewing with her and um, it'll be really exciting when some of that work comes out. Oh, wow. Thank you for letting us know. Um, And yeah, that was such a great chapter. Um, And yeah, thank you for, for describing um, the relevance or the importance of Durga. Um, So in chapter four, you write, and I quote, the marginalization of the revolutionary movement from Congress centric nationalist historiography has fed a backlash of sorts in which surviving revolutionaries and their supporters have written their accounts of the events of the period, which tend to be reactive and critical of the, of the Congress. This has only exacerbated the alienation between the two, end quote. However, as you describe in this chapter and early in this conversation, um, 
the, their relationship was a lot more, less adversarial than we might think. Um, I was wondering if you could describe the intersections of the Congress and the HSRA in Lahore, Delhi, and Kanpur, which complicates the simplistic narrative of Gandhi's Congress versus the HSRA revolutionaries. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think um, Jawaharlal Nehru is central to this. Um, of course, Jawaharlal Nehru becomes the India's first prime minister. And um, it, and it's not just Jawaharlal Nehru, it's actually also Motilal Nehru, right, at the, who are both uh, at, the, at this time um, very much central, actually, to Congress politics. Motilal Nehru was the president of the Congress in 1928 and the author of the Nehru Report, um, and Jawaharlal becomes president of the Congress in 1929, um, which is, again, you know, in, in and of itself quite interesting. Um, but I, I think one of the reasons why Nehru, the younger Nehru, Jawaharlal, is pressed into the Congress presidency is because there's a real recognition by Gandhi that the youth movement, um, which the revolutionaries appeal to very, very explicitly, is starting to gain a lot of traction within the Congress. And the, the Congress old guard, amongst whom I would include Motilal and Gandhi, are really struggling to maintain some of these more radical interpretations of Indian anti-colonialism. And in particular, the key point here is, should India be a, um, a dominion like Australia and Canada um, or South Africa, or should it actually go for Purnaswaraj, complete independence? And um, Jawaharlal Nehru is very much on the Purnaswaraj um, side of this argument, and so are much of the youth. They're, they're not really interested in this sort of halfway, um, you know, quasi ersatz uh, independence that is offered by Dominion status. Now, of course, what happens is that um, Nehru is, is really central to these politics um, of what's going on. As the, the president of the Congress in 1929, as a central figure in the civil disobedience movement, um, and then, of course, as um, the man who actually becomes India's first independent prime minister and who is actually very deliberately trying to downplay his role in revolutionary politics in the 1930s because when one becomes prime minister one has a you know one leads a state and being reminded of his uh, revolutionary entanglements just did not serve the the needs of, of post-independent India and certainly not the needs of Jawaharlal's politics and so he actually disavows a lot of his um, entanglements with the revolutionaries quite explicitly in the 1950s um, and on one stage, a, a surviving revolutionary writes to him and complains that, you know, you, you were so supportive of us in the 1930s and, and now you won't have anything to do with this. And he, he writes back saying, yes, of course, it'll, it'll create such a misunderstanding if I start talking about my revolutionary past. And so he, he really does disavow this sort of um, his role in um, in revolutionary politics during this period, which is one of kind of aiding and abetting, actually, I would argue. Um, that's something that I want to make a bit clearer um, in the, the next edition of this book. So the alienation between the Congress and the revolutionaries is actually something that happens at the heart of the, um, the writing of Indian nationalism by the independent Indian state, which prioritises Gandhi, which prioritises Gandhian projects like writing the collected works of Mahatma Gandhi, uh, and which really 
push this particular narrative of the exceptionalism of nonviolence, right? And again, within a Cold War, you know, um, con- condition, this is a particularly attractive idea that um, it's an Indian exceptionalist idea that that nonviolence nowhere else in the world has been able to provide such traction to um, to emancipatory movements. But I think the, the alienation between the Congress and the revolutionaries is something that is really perpetuated after the 1930s. Um, and if we actually look at the politics that I'm trying to describe, you know, 1928, 1929, 1931, they're very, very closely together. We have revolutionaries taking part in the civil disobedience movement. And, in fact, there's a there's a real slippage between who is a Congress member and who is a revolutionary, and, and many are actually both. I think this harder line about what it means to be a congressman and how congressmen must or congress people must um, claim overtly and explicitly not to support violence in any way, shape or form, including endorsing violent acts, is something that Gandhi insists on in the nineteen, you know, post-1931 period. Delhi and Kanpur, um, so again, all of the revolutionaries had grassroots links um, in the Congress in those cities um, and many of these links went on without Gandhi's knowledge. And if he did know, he certainly, I mean, he certainly is aware of it, right? I mean, I, th- I think one of the, mm-hmm. the key points here is that Gandhi calls for civil disobedience and the salt satyagraha as a way of trying to squeeze violence out of the political landscape, which he sees as mm-hmm. becoming so popular, right? There are people um, everywhere writing in support of revolutionaries um, and of Bhagat Singh and of their the fasts that they undergo in prison and their various deeds. And Gandhi's trying to squeeze that out of, of politics by launching the Salt Satyagraha. And he makes it very explicit, actually, in his um, his letter to uh, the Viceroy Lord Irwin that, um, you know, one of the reasons here is that violence is starting to take over the political spectrum and, um, yeah, we are... We are seeking to fill that political space with uh, civil disobedience instead. Um, and, mm-hmm. a, again, this, this creates a sort of a binary, if you like, between Congress and the revolutionaries. Great. Thank you. Um, so I was wondering if you could read a short excerpt from Chapter 5, uh, the next chapter, and expand on the role of popular posters in your story of the intersections between the Congress and the HSRA. Um, I should note for the listeners that uh, the end in this excerpt is a particular poster. Um, in doing so, I was wondering if you could pick one poster in particular to illustrate your argument. I should note that in your uh, that your book contains some wonderful images. Um, Thank you so much. I, it's really hard to um, narrow it down to one poster. Would you <laughs> Would you like me to yeah, please the end? Um, the end is an poster. Um, again, we're using different editions, so I can't find the precise page that you're talking about. But the end is um, is a poster of a uh, of Bhagat Singh on a crucifix um, with um, a figure that we would normally associate with the Mother Mary at his feet, who is actually Mother India, and grasping his feet, crying, um, dishevelled, upset, heartbroken at his execution. In either hand, he has the head of Rajguru and Sukhdev, who were executed alongside him. And above him is the head of Jitendranath Dash, who had fasted to the death in prison. Um, 
as part of a hunger strike that the revolutionaries were conducting um, in protest at the racially differential ways in which prisoners in Indian jails were being treated. Um, it's an extraordinary poster because it mixes so many different genres. Um, obviously, the the crucifix is um, uh, you know the symbol of Christian martyrdom, and of course, what we see in um, in this period is the the construction of a a category of political martyrdom of which Bhagat Singh comes to typify. Um, and so, it, it's the most clearest actually in this particular poster. Um, that's not all. In the above, uh, in the in the sky of the poster, we see some really interesting um, features. Um, we see the heads of a number of recently uh, departed, um, in other words, uh, deceased um, Indian nationalists. We see Motilal Nehru, who dies in February of 1931. Bhagat Singh, of course, is executed the next month, um, just weeks later, actually. Um, we see Bal we see Lalaj Patrai, and um, we see a number of cherubs also in the sky. Now, actually, um, this image does is, is heavily redolent of a lot of Christian imagery, but it's also redolent of a lot of um, mogul apotheosis sort of art that we see, for example, in the church or in the court of Jahangir, um, which again, in turn, was actually inspired by a lot of Christian um, religious art. Um, in particular. And so there's mm-hmm. an interesting long lineage here that is actually being drawn in um, into this particular image. Now what's been, what is especially interesting about this image is that, you know, I use images because um, during this period the, um, the, the amount of literacy in India, um, in, in Punjab, for example, I think the figure of literacy is, is, is around 8%. Um, and that's of males, so it's pretty low. So one of the key questions about um, nationalism is this idea that print capitalism spreads nationalist consciousness. However, in the Indian case, this has a fairly limited application, right, and this goes back to some of the work Gyan Pandey did in the 1970s, that um, very few people are able to read text, but we do know people read text out to people. Mm -hmm. I'm going one step further and showing how Nationalist ideas were spread through images. And so, for example, the image of Pagat Singh with his, um, with his hat that was popularised and leaked quite deliberately to the media from revolutionary quarters after his arrest in 1929 becomes incorporated into a whole range of forms of art, um, mm-hmm. including this uh, martyrdom art, which both anticipates his imminent execution but then celebrates it after the actual, after his death. Um, And the ways in which ideas about his martyrdom by referencing it to Christian martyrdom are then perpetuated and consumed and read and understood implicitly by any Indian viewer looking at this image who has a familiarity with uh, Christian concepts. But but even, you know, I I don't think you even need to be familiar with Christian concepts to be able to read this image effectively. So the Mm -hmm. images are important because they enable people to read and process concepts of anti-colonialism without having to engage with text, without being able to read, let's say, Urdu Urdu text or um, or Punjabi text. It it, it is something that is communicable um, at a glance, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Now, the other important image thing about this image is that we really have 
insights to how the British responded to them. What we do get is um, sometimes a description of the images in um, British intelligence records where they say this image is banned and anybody who is found to have it in their possession will be punished under this particular law which relates to seditious imagery. Um, So we get descriptions of the images but not reactions, right? And we actually have a reaction to this image that I found in Malcolm Darling's papers. So Malcolm Darling was a Punjabi administrator. He's quite famous actually in um, a lot of um, studies of the Punjab. And he saw the um, this particular poster prominently displayed in a picture shop. Um, he talks about it as a, Bhagat Singh, a picture of Bhagat Singh crucified in a Hamburg hut hat. Um, at the foot of a cross, a weeping figure of Mother India. And he was absolutely astounded to see this. He, he felt, uh, I think the word he um, described, he used to describe this was audacious. So he's affronted by the use of a Christian and therefore somehow British concept um, where Bhagat Singh is being drawn into a, a British religious frame, right? And then not only that, but also publicly displayed and for Malcolm Darling, that is a um, a doubly uh, affronting image to see. Um, not only the appropriation of the image of Christ, but also the appropriate, you know, the um, the open display of it in in stores, which to him goes to show a new kind of assertiveness that he's particularly disturbed by. I think. Um, but the the image um, comes up on Google if you Google Bhagat Singh the end. Um, and I think seeing the image will help put it into a lot more context. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so could you talk about the role the HSRA played in the Congress going from demanding dominion status uh, within the British Empire to Purna Swaraj, uh, which you discuss in Chapter 6? One of the things I found really interesting was you demonstrating how the Congress was not, and I quote, as Gandhi wished it to be, a well-disciplined army unquestionably obeying the orders of a central command, end quote. Yeah, so, I mean, this this debate between um, whether the Congress should be um, insisting upon complete independence, Purna Swaraj, is one that animates the politics of 1928 as constitutional reform is being visited upon India in the form of the Simon Commission. Um, and uh, the Nehru report is ultimately the... Um, you know, the British, uh, sorry, the Indian, the Congress response to um, the Simon Commission's anticipated report, which is, of course, to recommend that, um, you know, there should be some tinkering of constitutional arrangements, but nothing terribly substantial. Um, The basis of the Nehru report was, in fact, Dominion status. And there was a lot of people within the Congress uh, movement um, who found this too moderate and were not actually very satisfied with this as a political um, project. And one of the most important people here were was um, Jawaharlal Nehru, um, but also Subhash Chandra Bose as well. Neither of them thought, thought that um, dominion status was going to serve India well. And there's a number of reasons for that. One is because um, they could see, I mean, Jawaharlal Nehru is a, a close observer of international politics. And he actually notes in one of his um, writings that if you look at the way in which um, Britain deals with Australia, which is a dominion, uh, you know, which does have dominion status, 
um, we can see actually that it's not really a form of independence at all. And he's talking in particular about a, um, you know, the British insistence on Australia organising its economy in such a way that was favourable to British exchange rates. Um, and so that provided just one glimpse, and there, there were many others actually, um, the other one being that, um, you know, the most astute observer could not fail to recognise that the Dominions were all white and they had major problems with um, uh, with racism, honestly, um, because most of them had immigration policies that excluded non-white people and often explicitly Indians, um, including Australia, but also most famously the treatment of Indians in South Africa had been a, a contentious issue in politics since the late 19th century, which Gandhi himself, of course, had been central to. So um, the, the sort of tensions between Dominion status and Purna Swaraj really run along generational lines. Um, Gandhi supports um, Dominion status. Initially, Motilal Nehru is the, the architect, right, of Dominion status as a demand. But there's these much younger generation of highly energetic political activists who want more out of their politics. And Nehru's one of those, Subhash Chandra Bose is one of those, and these are extraordinarily popular leaders in their provinces. But there's also lots of youth groups, um, some of which the revolutionaries are actually um, connected to quite closely. Uh, and what, uh, you know, the, the challenge that Gandhi has is to try to manage these two groups and to, in particular, manage the demands of these two groups which after the, the prominence, the rise of the revolutionaries in politics, um, they seem to have this alternative route to, to follow and to support, and that is, you know, revolutionaries. And so Gandhi has to find a way of trying to, to pick up those energies and to run with them. And so he, is, he does actually agree to support Purna Swaraj, and that's the, the big decision that goes through the Congress annual meeting in 1929. Um, some mm -hmm. of the politics of which, uh, again, I write about it in detail, but, you know, one of the key happenings around that was an attempt to assassinate Lord Irwin, the Viceroy, which fails, um, which the revolutionaries themselves were behind, um, but which, again, the the Congress movement is, again, forced to deal with the, the popularity of the attempt to kill Lord Irwin. You know, it's interesting, a lot of the time, um, again, the historic, especially historiography coming out of Britain, has talked about the the failures of revolutionaries. You know, so the revolutionaries attempt to assassinate Lord Irwin and fail. They attempt to assassinate the governor of Punjab and they fail. But even though they fail to kill these people, they succeed in popularizing their politics more and more in India, and they also succeed in making British imperialists living in India afraid. And it, that puts British imperialism on the back foot, at least in India. Uh, we still have, of course, very conservative interests in, in London at the time. Of course, the most prominent one is um, Winston Churchill, who is nauseated to see this negotiation between Gandhi and the Viceroy in 1931. <laughs> I argue that all of these politics are, in fact, pushed and can be read as Congress responses to the challenge of revolutionary violence. Great. And I think it, it comes off quite convincingly. Um, so moving to Chapter 8, uh, I was wondering if you could talk about the demise of the HSRA in the context of the British crackdown in the early 1930s. 
in doing so, I was wondering if you could talk about how lessons were learned uh, by the British uh, from Bengal to suppress the political violence in Punjab, uh, as I found that to be an interesting and important point. Yeah, so, I mean, for a long time, and this is something that um, that Dorbogosh has written about um, so beautifully, so I won't rehash it terribly, but the, the use of um, emergency legislation to quell revolutionary activity um, is was, was a really important and actually long-lasting um, form of politics, of managing poorly uh, revolutionary politics, um, which has a, in some ways a longer history, um, right? And um, so this is something that they do apply to, um, to all India in this sort of um, post-revolutionary wave of the 1930s. I think what the really key, one of the key issues, I think, I think there's many factors, right, that go towards this um, British crackdown. I mean, it's obviously um, the extensive use of legislation, including legislating against posters, um, including legislating against people talking about martyrs like Bhagat Singh in, a, in a, uh, an adulatory fashion. But it's also about the loss of the supporters within the Congress for revolutionary politics. So Motilal Nehru, I've already mentioned, dies in 1931, and he was providing, I mean, I think he's obviously providing a lot of legal, moral and financial support to the revolutionaries, which has long been unremarked. But more importantly, I think what he's actually also doing is he's, he's a major power within the Congress that Gandhi has to contend with. And in particular, um, that means that the younger Nehru, Jawaharlal, is, I guess, less exposed to a lot of Gandhi's influence. And after the death of his father, I think Jawaharlal comes much stronger, much more strongly under um, Gandhi's influence. And that doesn't lift for some time. And I think that's also a really important element here, is that not only do the revolutionaries lose the, the this sort of um, covert clandestine fatherly advice from Motilal Nehru, which is very careful and which is usually um, propelled through intermediaries so that there's no direct contact, um, but but also the support that Jawaharlal has, I think, in taking his own line against Gandhi is also lost with the death of Motilal Nehru. So that's one element. Another important loss, I think, is the death of Ganesh Shankar Vidyati, the Congress leader who I talked about, who was also a huge supporter of the revolutionaries, who um, was a, a well-respected Congress leader and, and um, press man. I think their loss, the, the loss of the loss of their leadership within the Congress, creates an opening for Gandhi to um, to dominate the program without any opposition. Of course, he had already been fairly dominant. But a lot of the opposition um, does start to fall away um, to his uh, politics within the Congress and he gets a much stronger hold than ever before. So I think that's also actually a critical element as to why the revolutionaries um, start to implode. But also the revolutionaries, I mean, many of them are jailed um, and many of them are killed. The leaders are killed. Um, You know, Chandrasekhar Azad in in a shootout in a park, which is very dramatic. Um, and the, uh, you know, Bhagat Singh, Rajguru and Sukhdeva hanged um, as well. And this takes away the, the most important of the leaders. Um, after that, there's, there's very little, uh, you know, I mean, other leaders like Yashpal, for example, are arrested uh, later in 1932. And every now and then you get revolutionary 
um, posters and statements being issued and they're never really tracked down. But it's it, the movement as a whole loses a lot of its momentum. Um, so it's not simply about what the British do to bring the movement to its knees. It's, it's a number of other more complex factors as well. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Um, so you write in your conclusion, and I quote, if the revolutionary contribution to the mainstream nationalist movement was so fundamental, why did it lose the support of the important Congress leaders who continued to shape the nationalist movement, in particular of Jawaharlal Nehru? In the answer to this, I believe, the, uh, to an- uh, the answer to this, I believe, lies in Jawaharlal's judgment of the complex interrelationships between various modalities of violence in the aftermath of the Kanpur riots. End quote. I was wondering if you could explain what you mean by this. Yeah, it's it needs a lot more explanation. I realise than the, than I dwell on in the book, but. Um, after Bhagat Singh was hanged, there were mass protests all over India. And um, in Kanpur, um, there were particularly uh, grave riots that broke out after Congress workers tried to force a hartal or a, a shop closure on um, shopkeepers in Kanpur, and in particular Muslim shopkeepers in Kanpur. Now, Kanpur has a long history of um, communal tension. And, I mean, I think it's really interesting that it's Congress workers who try to force a shutdown on um, on, sh- on stores in the aftermath of Bhagat Singh's death, which demonstrates the the closeness with which Bhagat Singh's politics actually does become associated with um, Congress. Right, um, Congress in this particular action is um, is indistinguishable actually from Bhagat Singh's politics. They are forcing a lockdown in memory of his death. Now, um, interestingly, that Muslim shopkeepers also refused to do something that the Congress wanted, i.e. shut their stores, is also important because Bhagat Singh himself was actually a, a, a real anti-communal thinker. He felt that you know religious identities were extremely dangerous in India and he abhorred communalism in all of its forms. So we have a, a real tension here that, in fact, you know, Bhagat Singh is killed for his politics and yet his politics are not that broadly understood, right? His anti-communism and his, his critique of caste is not particularly well understood. Um, now, in particular, why is Jawaharlal Nehru important of this? Well, I already mentioned that Ganesh Shankar dies in 1931, and he's actually killed in the Kanpur riots that break out. As a prominent Congress leader, he goes to a part of town in Kanpur where the violence is particularly bad, and he's stabbed. And he dies, and um, he also becomes actually a martyr. There, there's imagery I use in the book that illustrates his martyrdom, his his political martyrdom in the context of the riots. Now, all of this time, Gandhi had been trying to convince Jawaharlal Nehru that um, we can't use violence because, uh, you know, for reasons of, uh, you know, that are moral, that are deeply moral. Now, if we look at some mm-hmm. of Jawaharlal Nehru's statements about violence in 1928 and even into 1929 and 30, he actually makes explicit statements that, um, of course, Mahatma Gandhi believes in violence for moral and ethical reasons. He's, he's coming from this sort of high understanding of violence. But we also believe that violence is impractical in, in the current moment. Um, now, again, subsequently this has been analysed as being uh, two kinds of ways of understanding nonviolence as a policy. 
You know, violence is impractical because the British have the monopoly of violence, obviously, and if we use Mm. violence, they will have bigger violence to use against us. But actually what happens in the aftermath of Ganeshankar Vijayati's death is I think Jawaharlal becomes convinced by Gandhi that this is what's happened, right, that Bhagat Singh used violence in an anti-colonial context Now, interestingly, while he's in prison, Bhagat Singh actually, this is why I talked about, um, you know, HSRA ideologies being dynamic. I mean, A, there was a lot of difference between the way in which Chandrasekhar Azad, for example, conceptualised violence and even particular attempts like the attempt on the Viceroy um, and the ways in which Bhagat Singh thought about these same issues. So there's difference within the organisation, but there's also changes within the organisation as well. And so Bhagat Singh, when he's in prison, he writes about, in the early stage of my career, I believed in terrorism, but now I don't. And he he talks about this actually and writes about it and these writings are subsequently published. Jawaharlal Nehru starts to rethink, I think, and I suspect this is as a result of Gandhi's prompting, although we don't have, um, you know, at the time of the Kanpur riots, Gandhi and Nehru are actually together in um, Karachi where there's a Congress meeting when they get the news that their friend, their colleague, their Congress colleague, Ganesh Chankavijati, has been killed in this communal violence. I think what happens is that Gandhi is able to demonstrate to Nehru that if we use violence against the British, then we use violence against each other, that by introducing violence into the political spectrum as a method, we cannot determine or prevent its deployment in other forms, in particular against our own people. And that's why we don't use violence because once we perpetuate it, it becomes difficult to to mobilise and to control. And so this is the irony, right, that uh, memorialisation of Bhagat Singh who in prison um, regrets, you know, um, the use of violence um, is, is actually, you know, in the Kanpur riots is somehow turned into anti-communal violence. And then it's Gandhi, in fact, that um, through a number of writings actually seeks to demonstrate how if we use violence, then it ends up being used against our own people. And it's actually quite interesting. I think um, this is actually uh, demonstrated in some of Fanon's writings, which is, of course, um, written decades after these particular incidents, but which I think demonstrate them quite well, that, you know, violence becomes... Uh, a part of the atmosphere. You know, you talk, Fanon talks about atmospheric violence and it's mm-hmm. not something that Gandhi wants to actually encourage or play any kind of role in. And it's one at that moment that I think Nehru sees Gandhi's point and he then starts making explicit statements against any kind of violence. Up until then, even in his presidential speech of 1929, Jawaharlal says that it's best not to use violence, but if we need to, we will. And, you know, British reports write about this with horror that, you know, Jawaharlal Nehru is the president of the Congress and he's not adhering to the platform of nonviolence. But I think Nehru himself is undergoing this very interesting sort of dynamic development himself about the role of violence in, uh, you know, in in nationalism, in anti-colonial action. Um, And I think that's what's actually happening here is that he's now seeing how violence can be, you know, can end up being deployed against one's own people. And he admits that that's not something that we can really address. And this also forces the Congress to try and address its communal um, 
some of its communal blind spots as well, although I think it seems to be too late for it to do so effectively because, of course, you know, 1930, the idea of Pakistan is being imagined, right, by, by Iqbal and others. Yeah. Great. Thank you. That's such an important and interesting point. Thank you for expanding on that. Um, and speaking of Pakistan, um, we've dis- we've talked a lot about Bhagat Singh and the HSRA's relationship to the Congress, but I was wondering if you could talk about how Bhagat Singh is remembered or not in Pakistan. After all, he was born, raised, and executed in what is now Pakistan. And Jinnah made uh, an impassioned defense of him in the Legislative Assembly in 1929, which you briefly discuss in your book. Yeah. So this is something I think my colleague um, Chris Moffat has done much better. But I, I do mention briefly in the book that there has been almost a partitioning of history in that, um, you know, there's there's not a lot of integration of Bhagat Singh within mainstream uh, Pakistani histories, although he is remembered and he does have a, a fairly, you know, you know again, a, like, you know, in some ways not differently in India, a popular understanding of Bhagat Singh and his politics is mm-hmm. in Pakistan and, of course, particularly perpetrated by the left um, in the contemporary moment. Um, but there has been, I mean, I, I suspect there are wonderful records um, in Pakistan um, that pertain to the Lahore conspiracy case, which very few researchers have been able to um, to access. There does seem to be some general reluctance on the behalf of the Pakistani state to provide any kind of um, encouragement or um, abetment, if you like, to recovering these kinds of histories, um, these revolutionary histories, which, you know, ultimately can be read as projects of providing a template of how to oppose a state ultimately, which is, again, I think one reason why Jawaharlal Nehru in particular seeks to minimise his own role um, in revolutionary politics of the 1930s when he becomes Prime Minister. Great. Thank you. Um, so before we end our discussion, I was wondering if you could talk about some of the interesting revelations you will be including in the newer edition of this book when it eventually comes out. Um, you were kind enough to send me a draft of the postscript, uh, and I think it would be great if you could talk about uh, what seems to be quite explosive revelations. Um, before you do that, I just want to give a quick shout out to Sick Archive podcast, uh, where you gave an interview on this book and these revelations, and where I first heard of them. Yeah, thank you. Um, so the the revelations that I'm talking about are um, in the the edition of the book that you've read. Um, I felt that Motilal Nehru was really central to a lot of the, um, you know, providing strategic. I've already talked about strategic uh, legal advice. Um, to the revolutionaries. But what I'd started to find when I was researching the book was indications that he had known about particular actions. Um, and in particular, I'd found indications that he knew about the assembly bombing before it took place. And um, I wanted to write about those more in the book, but um, I didn't have the really clear evidence or the smoking gun, right, um, to demonstrate that. But subsequently, I did find a lot more evidence that does actually indicate that Motilal Nehru did know about the bombing of the Legislative Assembly before it took place. And this is really, I mean, it's a revelation. It's its an explosive revelation, just not to um, want to overly play on words. Um, and I, I've written about it um, in the, what is the afterword that you've read? But um, it's interesting, a lot of people at the time write about 
Moji Lal's reaction when the bombs go off. Um, he's the only person who doesn't run away. And it's interesting when I started to look into some of the oral history interviews of the surviving revolutionaries, there's a debate amongst the HSRA when they're planning the bombing. Do we warn, you know, some of the nationalist members who we actually respect, like Moji Lal Nehru, or not? And there's a difference of opinion. One is that, well, if we warn him, then maybe he'll tell um, the British what's going to happen and we won't be able to continue with the action. Um, but, in fact, I think what happens is that there's a leak and a, um, one of the sort of um, more peripheral activists in the party is very close to Motilal Nehru um, and he does inform him, look, there's going to be a bombing on this particular day. Um, it's intended to be a smoke bomb. They're not trying to kill anyone but just so you know. And so when the bombs are thrown down, members of parliament and it's it's like a who's who of, of Indian politics, but also British politics at the time. Simon is in, you know, John Simon is in the in the chamber. Um, uh, the viceroy is in the chamber. Um, a number of, of major notables are there, and they all scatter, and chapels are left behind, and papers are, are left flying, and a number of accounts say Motilal Nehru was calm, you know, and. No one, none of these accounts seem to indicate that he knew, but a lot of them talk about how he was brave, right? And when I started to put these together with the revolutionary stories about do we warn Motilal Nehru, um, I started to be able to build a picture that indicated that he had been informed beforehand. Um, later I found a, an oral history interview which also suggested that um, Motilal Nehru funded the revolutionaries, um, so he actually funded... Um, gave the revolutionaries money, which the revolutionaries used to buy um, weapons, which Duga Devi Vora, in fact, um, transported. And she met Motilal Nehru and showed him um, the rifles. And he said something to the effect that, you know, it's it's he, he dabs tears away and says it's you people that will actually help advance the movement. So, you know, my, my sense is that after a, a lifetime of trying to um, you know, uh, provide uh, leadership to a moderate form of politics. Motilal knew he was dying by the 19, I, I think 1930. He was having a lot of um, problems with his lungs. He was imprisoned and then let out of prison in civil disobedience because he was he was declining. And I think he'd started to believe that, in fact, you know, the political spectrum could be deepened by um, by by incidents of political violence. And, in fact, it's the revolutionaries who first approached them. So, again, it's um, we, we know through Sukhdev's, um, some of his um, uh, contacts, that, uh, you know, initially when um, the first assassination happens in Lahore, um, a lot of Congress leaders um, are expected to performatively denounce the attack on the police forces in Lahore. Um, and... Um, Sukhdev and, and other revolutionaries through an intermediary in Lahore approach Motilal Nehru and say, now, look, why, why do you actually denounce our politics? If you actually realise that you could actually use us as a foil um, to say to the British, you know, if this is what happens when you don't provide constitutional reform, you would actually be able to advance your politics. And that's precisely what we see um, Motilal doing. So after the bombs in the Legislative Assembly are thrown, there's some interesting exchanges between um, Jawaharlal and Motilal, which I think are also indica indicative. But Motilal actually gives a speech where he says to the British, here's the choice you have. 
You can have Balraj, which is one of the um, the revolutionary monikers, um, which means the the rule of strength, um, which seems to imply violence. Or you can have Gandhi. So you you make your choice. Um, you can you can negotiate with Gandhi, or we'll see more political violence like this. And that seems to indicate, I think, um, the the very interesting um, complication in um, Moshinal Nehru's politics at the end of his life where this man who has been moderately writing reports, advocating for dominion status, then in his final years turns somewhat revolutionary. Uh, we also know that he gave money, um, even Jawaharlal um, notes that in his biography although it's not in all versions of his biography, which is quite interesting as well. Great. Thank you. It's also uh, kind of coincidence that as you're talking about revolutionaries, it sounds like there's a police siren uh, <laughs> going on behind you. Um, so um, just a final note to the listeners. I've given so many of these, but um, Dr. McLean was interviewed very recently on her latest book, uh, British India, White Australia, Overseas Indians, Intercolonial Relations and the Empire. 1901 to 1947. Um, I listened to it last week and it also sounds like a fantastic book. I'm really looking forward to reading it. So I've taken so much of your time, uh, way too much of your time. Uh, But before I let you leave, could you tell us about what you're working on now? So that book you just mentioned, British India, White Australia, was a real departure from this project, obviously. And um, it was an important book to write because it demonstrated the history of the very troubled history, actually, um, between Australia and India and Australia's approach to um, questions around um, Indian residency, which we've actually just seen in the last um, uh, unfortunate fortnight where um, Indian uh, or residents, um, anyone who's in India at the moment is now unable to return to Australia. And um, mm-hmm. I'd be unfortunate and so <laughs> regrettably avoidable um, had they engaged with my book. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> I, it, it gives me no pleasure to talk about this book. And, I, you know, again, I listened to my own interview not so long ago and I, I realised how unhappy I am talking about the, the issue of contemporary racism but historical racism as well. So I'm really mm-hmm. keen to leave that project behind um, and to return to Indian anti-colonialism. And... In fact, one of the reviews of my book, um, Shugata Rai, did a lovely review where he talked about my book as being a a multi-sensory history of interwar India. And I felt that was really a nice way to think about it, but I felt I hadn't really fulfilled that enough. And so what I want to try to do is take the lessons of sound studies to South Asian history and to try to revisit this politics of civil disobedience with an ear to um, what it sounded like. You know, um, Indian anti-colonialism was really noisy. Um, It sounds obvious, right? But so many of us, myself included, in this very book we've just discussed for the past hour and a half, I've I've talked about Gandhi's speeches and even Jawaharlal's speeches and quoted them. But who could hear those speeches at the back, right? Um, Mm -hmm. These were really noisy affairs. And I think the, the ability to communicate um, in this period, especially without technology, um, you know, the PA system becomes actually really important around about this time and Gandhi loves the microphone and the speaker system. 
because mm. it gives him the ability to communicate much more widely and much more clearly than ever before, but also to censor, in fact. And so when Bhagat Singh is killed, um, there's actually, a, again, a, a major um, discussion at the Karachi Congress where the motion is that um, we admire Bhagat Singh's acts but we deplore political violence in all of its kinds. And some of Bhagat Singh's um, supporters within the Congress get up and get the microphone and start to speak against the resolution and they're disconnected. They lose their platform, right, through the mechanical device of the, the loudspeaker system. And so I want to actually look at some of how this worked in um, in the civil disobedience period. And I want to look at songs and slogans as well. And another really interesting aspect here, part of my book argues that there's a such a close overlap between revolutionary and Congress politics. So we know, for example, if you read really closely accounts of the um, the raid on Darasna and in, during the Salt March, the marches were shouting, Inkalab Zindabad, which means long live the revolution. That wasn't a Gandhian slogan, really. Um, and, of course, Gandhi during this um, period is imprisoned and unable to do anything about that particular slogan. But it's really interesting to, if, if we actually really listen to some of the traces of noise in the archives, how... Um, how that will actually shift our understanding of this period. And so that's my my next project. Wow, that sounds really, really fascinating. And yeah, I really look forward to reading that and, and maybe having you on again. Uh, and I promise not to be as greedy with my questions uh, oh, <laughs> next time. They were really wonderful questions. I, um, I've missed um, this period of research and I'm really excited to return to it. And um, so I'm really happy to talk about it. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. You're most welcome, Sami. Thank you. Mm-hmm.